0: Well, hey everybody, it is so good to be with you today and I am so grateful that we get to be a part of this together. Hey, before I dive into the message, I just want to mention a couple of things that are really great. Um, This week, I just heard about some awesome stuff that's happening. I heard about our student ministries that are meeting in different groups in people's backyards. In addition to our community groups, I've heard about people getting together, really experiencing community together and and being the church. Uh, I heard about our young adults who had a great gathering in our parking lot. It was awesome, Uh, really cool stuff. And then just, uh, just the other day, I found out that we still have over 300 people that are uh, attending our marriage course online on our Zoom call. So we are just still doing everything we can. We're still feeding families in the community, still being the church in every way possible. And I just thank you for hanging with us during this season. I especially want to thank you for your generosity and forgiving generously during this time because we absolutely want to come out of this season ready to be the church that God created us to be. So I just want to thank you for that. Now, Uh, We're in this series in the New Testament book of Acts called When the World Turned Upside Down. And it's interesting because the book of Acts is really a history of the first church and its beginning in the city of Jerusalem, and then its explosion really throughout the world. And the reason that we're looking at this series is ultimately because we're asking ourselves, how can we be that kind of church? How can we be those kinds of people? Now, Here's what's really interesting about this. Um, The early church was in a setting, it was in a dynamic that was very similar to the the, the church today. It it was in a pluralistic culture. Uh, It it found itself in very idealistic um, environments that were opposed to the gospel. Uh, There were belief systems that were diametrically different than what the message of Jesus was about. And, And so this church is being birthed in that sort of environment, and yet somehow the church just grew And it didn't grow because there were more children that were being born into Christian homes. It grew because there were people. There were were people who who believed differently. There were people who had been raised differently. There were people who had never considered Jesus. And they suddenly became engrossed in this story, this narrative of this this rabbi from Nazareth, and they became followers of Jesus. Or as we're going to see in our text today, they became followers of the way. It was this amazing thing that was happening. Now, there's a word for what takes place in a person's life when they have this transition, when they go from believing one thing to believing another sort of thing. And that word is the word conversion. Um, there's really no better word to describe this. People were being converted. People believed a certain thing. They had a certain set of values around the world, they, around their world, a certain set of ideas about how life was just supposed to work. And then suddenly there was a shift and now they began to believe other things. They began to understand life through a different lens or a different perspective. But, but here's what's interesting about this word, the word conversion. Um, for a number of reasons, I truly believe that today, these days, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Um, There are people today who think that calling for conversion of people is sort of primitive and narrow-minded, like it's a primitive version of Christianity. Some people uh, even believe that to ask for conversion is wrong, that it somehow is disrespectful to indicate to a person that their life would shift or change in this sort of way. Um, It's primitive Christian thinking. That's what some people think. Um, They they even ask questions. Do we really need to talk like that in today's day and age when we're educated and understand things the way that we do? Even inside the church, on a personal level, I know there are some people that would say, well, I'm not sure that describes my experience. And there are people even in the church that say, is conversion really the best word to describe what I went through? Here's what's interesting. If you put those questions to the Bible and you say, well, what does the Bible say about this? Um, You see that the answer is is abundantly yes. In fact, um, Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 says, unless you are converted, you won't enter, you won't experience the kingdom of God. Uh, In John chapter three, he says, unless you're born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. There's this idea, maybe two different statements, but they're really saying the same thing, that there's this change, there's this transition, there's this shift that takes place in a person's life change is taking place in the life of an individual. So according to Jesus, this is a critical part of what it means to follow him. There's this this change that's taking place. Now, here's what's interesting. So this is happening in the scriptures, but what we observe in the scriptures is also very fascinating, and it's this. When you read the Bible and all of the actual conversion stories, they're incredibly diverse. Some are very dramatic and very visible. Some are quiet and behind the scenes. Some are very sudden. And then some seem to trickle on and take some time. The point I'm making is that conversion is real, but conversion also appears to be different for different people in the Bible, which means this. We have to be careful not to prescribe what conversion is or what it looks like. We have to be careful um, not to develop a pattern and demand that everyone look the same or that every conversion takes these particular steps and that certain categories of a person's life seem to be filled in in the the same order, that it all looks the same. I mean, think about it this way. Um, There might be things that change in your life right away that might take years for me to shift and change in my life. That seems to be what we see in the scriptures. It's not formulaic. But at the same time, we can't deny its reality. These people who were turning the world upside down were being converted. They were thinking new things, believing new things. Now, you ask the question, well, why do I bring this up? Why are we talking about this today? Well, today we're going to be looking at one of the more significant conversion stories in the Bible, the conversion of a man named Saul, also known as Paul. And it is an iconic story of a a conversion. And if you open your Bible, you'll see a heading. It talks about the conversion of Saul. And it would be incredibly easy to say one of two things about what we're going to read today. One of them would be for us to say, well, here's the example here's what conversion looks like, here's what it means for you to move through this process, and this is what everybody should experience, it should look like this, this is what it means to be converted. Or on the other hand, we could look at this and we could say, well, this is an incredibly unique conversion, it's an outlier, and we shouldn't take this as an example. But what I want to present to you today is a third option for us, that that while some of the details that we're going to be looking at are specific to Paul, there is a process that he's moving through that is consistent with the conversions we see throughout the Bible and even throughout Christian history, even today. That There are essentially elements, there are um, ingredients, if you will, that can be translated or transferred from his experience to anyone who's ever shifted their faith or shifted their their understanding, their worldview of, of, of the world, who shifted it from one thing to the way of Jesus. In fact, I think as we look through this today, many of you are going to see parallels to your own life. You're going to look at this and say, well, yeah, this is this is me. I moved through this process. And some of you, I really believe this, you're going to be listening to this today and you're going to realize you're actually right in the middle of this. Like I'm describing the process that you're in now. And still others of you, you may go, you know what, I think I need to revisit this in my life and think about whether or not I've really leaned into this, even though it might be in my past. In any case, this is a story that has remarkable relevance to our own story so If you have your Bible, I want you to open up. We're in Acts chapter 9, and that's where we're picking up from last week. Pastor Lane brought us to this point. He did an amazing job last week. I loved his message, but I want you to remember the sequence of events because they they lead up to this moment. In chapter 7, there was a man named Stephen who was killed outside the city of Jerusalem. While he was being killed, this individual Saul that we're looking at, he was the one that was overseeing his his murder. Uh, He was standing by. He wasn't a direct participant, but he was encouraging this behavior. Um, Saul is also behind the persecution that caused the spreading of the church into places like Samaria and Ethiopia, those things that we've been looking at. But in all of this persecution and everything that's going on, more and more people are believing in Jesus. And so this chapter, it, 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 it's coming right after the baptism of this Ethiopian eunuch from last week. And now we see this dramatic shift in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible, verse 1 of Acts chapter 9 says this. So right here in this first section of this, we have the first aspect, the first element of true conversion, and it begins with a confrontation. Uh, The text says that Paul is literally knocked to the ground. But what is it that knocks him to the ground? When you think about this, is it it the light that knocks him to the ground? Is it the booming voice from heaven that knocks him to the ground? Uh, I truly believe that the real reason he's knocked to the ground is that he's being confronted with the truth. He's being confronted with a truth other than the one that he has expected to be true, the one that he has chosen to believe. He's colliding with a God that he didn't create, a God who was, who was not his own reality, a God who, who, who has his own reality apart from what Paul understood, a God who was truly there. See, I want you to understand that up until this point, Saul had constructed a God in his mind. He had a God that he was holding on to that was the God that he wanted. But his God is not the real God. Maybe you ask, well, how do, you, how do you know this? Well, if you look at verse 5, he says, who are you? I mean, He doesn't know this God because this God that he had was a God he had fabricated, a God that he wanted, a God who wasn't actually there. And this encounter is so opposite of what he expected that when he's face to face with God, he's dumbfounded. Like, I know God and I don't know who you are. And so can you explain yourself to me? You're not him. Who are you? Now it's probably really good for us to pause right here and, and just recognize that there are some differences between Saul and us, and there are also some similarities between us. Um, let me just explain this, that today, people in our culture, we aren't going to construct a God uh, like Saul's God. Uh, we're not gonna construct a severe God, an angry God. We're not, gonna, we're not gonna construct a demanding God. That's the God that Saul was holding in his consciousness. But that doesn't mean that we don't construct a God. We still do this in our society today. There are a lot of people who genuinely believe that there is a God, but when you ask them to describe that God, they often describe a God that fits their understanding of the way life is supposed to work. So so God sort of fits neatly inside of their own prescription for how they want life to move. They describe a God that fits with their idea of how life should go. So so in other words, I want to use this phrase, it becomes a God that we imagine in our hearts. It's this God of our heart's imagination. They describe this kind of God. In fact, I hear people say all the time, well, I believe in a God that, and then they sort of fill in the blank. You have to ask the question though, where does that God come from? Where does that God come from? And even maybe another question is this. Is there a problem in thinking this way? The answer to that is there's a significant problem with this. It turns out that almost everything is wrong with this. And the personal implications are far-reaching. And let me just explain this. If we simply sit around and we're gathering all of our thoughts on God, we just decide to muse on these things— And and then then we start to construct an idea of this God. That God essentially, basically, is a projection of you yourself. If, If that's what I do, it's a projection of myself. This is what I think God is. And so God becomes a figment of my heart's creativity. And a God that you and I make cannot possibly help you. If this is the God that you have constructed in your mind, he can't lift you out of your circumstances. He can't make you more than you are. He can't do those things. If God is simply a byproduct of your ideas about God, then that God can't actually change you. That God can't transform you. That God can't help you because he's not greater than the imagination of your own heart because he's a figment of that imagination, a construction of your heart. And and what you and I need more than anything else is a God who is greater than our heart's imagination let me give you a single, very simple example of this. Um, this last week, I, I went fishing, and uh, I spent some time uh, alone in the woods. I needed to get away from technology. I needed to get away from uh, media. I just needed some time, so I had five days floating and fishing a river in Montana, and, um, and I'm sitting on this river, and I'm all alone, and, and I've got my thoughts just sort of spiraling through my head, and, and one of the conclusions, as I'm sort of evaluating the past six or seven months, and I'm taking it all in, I'm trying to gain some perspective on my life this last half of the year, and Um, and and as I'm thinking about these things, I suddenly come to realize, this is one simple thing I was thinking about, that I've been operating out of insecurity. Um, I've been oversensitive. I've been overthinking things, and those behaviors that that I've been engaging in, I decided they were ultimately being born out of my insecurity. Now, I'm not going to get into all the details of the why and what that all means for me, but this is also what I realized. As I'm sitting there on the river, and I'm actually with a couple of other friends, I realize I'm not the only one. I realized that, that this, this feeling of insecurity is universal. We all get insecure at some point or another, uh, unless, of course, we're a narcissist, and then there's an exception. But, um, but for the rest of us that don't some, have some sort of pathological illness, we, we, we really all, in different ways, under different circumstances, experience insecurity. So then the question is this. How will we ever be delivered from our own insecurities? Can a god who is a construct of our own hearts really do anything to help us or lift us out of our insecurity? Let me give you an example. There's this there's this interesting thing that John says, the apostle John in one of his letters, 1 John chapter 3 verse 20. He says this. He says, "For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything." If our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Now, what does this mean? essentially when he says your heart condemns you, it's a way of saying you start to feel bad about yourself. You start to recognize your own failings, your own insecurities. He's describing what I was describing a moment ago, but then he's saying God comes and says this. No, no, no. You, listen, you're wrong about yourself. This is what John, 1 John 3 is saying. You're wrong about yourself. You're wrong about who you are. There is a purpose for you and, and, and you're loved. That's what he's describing. There are times when our hearts condemn us, but God is greater than our hearts and he lifts us out of this. But the only way that is possible is if God is actually greater than our hearts. There has to be a God who is real, not a God we've constructed in our minds and our hearts. For this to happen, we have to have that kind of God. I hope you're tracking with me in this. Because unless you and I have a God that in some way tells us things that we don't tell ourselves, if, if if we don't have a God who will say to us the things that we need to hear, that we couldn't conjure up ourselves, um, unless we have a God that, that we allow to disagree with us or, or to contradict us, unless you have a God that, that you will allow to tell you that, that you're loved when you don't feel loved, unless you have that kind, of lo- that kind of God, we have no hope in this. God cannot be greater than your heart if he is just a construct of your heart. So what we begin to see here is that one of the ingredients of genuine conversion is that we begin to deal with a God who is really there. A God who's larger than what we could imagine, different than what we could imagine, even beyond what we could imagine. When you're converted, you get a sense that that God is more than what you could read about in a few books. When you're truly converted, you understand he actually is a God who might see things differently than you. In fact, you might even see that this is a God that is coming for you more than you have been going after him. And so there's this collision. Uh, I I love that when C.S. Lewis describes uh, his conversion experience, he describes it like a mouse that's searching for a cat. Um, If you think about that, mice don't search for cats. Cats search for mice. And when a mouse finds a cat, he quickly discovers that. That's the process of us being converted. We begin to realize, no, this is a God who's been coming after me. That's what happens when we find God in our search. We realize he's been looking and he is far greater and far more challenging than we could ever imagine in our own hearts because he's bigger than our hearts. So Paul has this confrontation. This God is bigger than I thought and this God may not fit neatly into my ideas about life. And what we discover in this is the necessity for a gracious, loving God to interrupt the trajectory of our lives in order to get our attention. That's what we're seeing. See, this is critical for you to catch. You cannot be personally converted if you are not personally confronted the conversion that God wants to do in your heart, not just in that first moment, but continually. If you're not willing to be confronted by that God, you will never be converted by that God. You can't be converted unless you've been confronted. It has to happen. So that's the first part of this. And then that leads to what happens next. So look at verse six with me. Verse six says this, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now, let me just explain that a lot of people seem to describe Saul's conversion as very sudden. Uh, let me just tell you that I'm not convinced that it was sudden. Uh, I'm convinced that it was dramatic, but I'm not convinced that it was sudden. Because look at this, he has the confrontation and then like so many other people, he enters into this next aspect, this this part of conversion that I like to call a consideration. He enters into a consideration period. I just want you to see this, that when this event takes place, Jesus doesn't force him into some sort of formulaic behavior. Uh, He actually, if you look at this truly, what Jesus does is he confronts him and then he just plunges him into darkness. He's blinded. He's carried off to a city that's probably somewhat unfamiliar to him. He even says that he's not even eating or drinking during this. So he's in this place for several days. And what's he doing in this? What is Jesus allowing to take place? Well, he's allowing him to think. He's left him to himself in the darkness for a period of consideration. He's been confronted by this God who holds truths that are outside of himself. And now he has to consider the implications of those truths. In fact, um, we actually have some ideas of what Saul does during this time because of what we read later, what we'll see next week, and what we see in Paul's letters later in his life. But, but basically, there were just a couple of things that he does. First, he was, he was praying and he was rethinking his entire understanding of God, likely by going back into the Bible and seeing things that he'd never seen before. The moment that he's confronted by Jesus on the road, all of a sudden there's this new reality about this Messiah who's being made known to him. I mean, as a Pharisee, he would have assumed that the Messiah would have been blessed and not cursed on a tree. He, 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 Jesus couldn't have been the Messiah because of the things that he'd seen. But now, when he has this encounter, when he's now seeing and experiencing the resurrected Jesus, his assumptions about who Jesus is as the Messiah are confronted. If Jesus was raised, then Jesus was vindicated. And that must mean that this cross that he was on wasn't one that he was on for his own brokenness, but one that he took on for someone else's sake. And so Paul in this moment is realizing if this is true, if this is Jesus, then why was he on this cross? What was he doing there? There has to be a rescue of some sorts. There's something taking place here. And because of that, he begins to go back and begins to think through everything he's learned as a Pharisee, as a student of Judaism. He begins to look and all of a sudden things start to make sense. He sees connections, he sees foreshadowing. For example, he would have gone back to Isaiah. In the first part of Isaiah, the Messiah is very strong. He's a king. He's, he's a warrior, if you will. But in the last part of Isaiah, the Messiah is all about suffering, a suffering servant who dies for the transgressions of the people. That didn't make sense before, but now all of a sudden he sees Jesus and suddenly puts things together and realizes that Isaiah was talking about this person of Jesus or go to the book of Leviticus Um, for centuries. He must be thinking we've been spilling the blood of animals to cover our sins. And there had to be a part of him that thought to himself, how in the world could dead animals atone for our sins? But what if those sacrifices were pointing to something in the future? See, These are just a couple of examples of the kinds of things that he would have been processing in this moment. All of his ideas about God are shifting, Saul believed that there was a strong God who moved in strong ways and he would send a strong Messiah and that anyone that would follow after him would have to be a strong person. Like if you summoned your strength and you obeyed, you would be blessed. That was how he thought of this God. Strong God, strong Messiah who saves strong people who obey this God. But now he's facing this God who sends a weak, suffering Messiah who dies on a cross and those who are saved are those who are strong enough to admit that they are weak. And when he understands that, suddenly everything looks different. And this is how it happens. You know, whenever people get converted, things that never made sense before suddenly make sense. Our understanding of who God is, it changes. And then our understanding of ourselves, it changes. Um, let me also mention this, that for years, I've heard the stories of people that were Christians who have had a similar experience. Like they, they woke up some point in the middle of their life to realize that Jesus was a far more wild Messiah than they ever imagined. There was, there was dimensions and colors to who Jesus is and they suddenly see for the first time. You know, later, um, Paul would write about this in his letters. In one partic- particular place, in Romans chapter seven, Paul says, um, he says that in this moment that he died. And you look at him and you go, well, not you didn't die. So what do you mean by this when you say that you died? Well, what he's saying is this, his whole system for finding identity, his whole system for finding purpose and meaning in this moment was stripped from him. And he had no sense of who he was. That's what's happening in this darkness. He dies in this. Now, let's be honest. Most of us are not building our identity on compliance to the Mosaic Law today, um, like he was. That's not where we're finding our worth today. Most of us are probably not doing this. But the question is, where are we building our identity? Is it in our possessions? Is it in our appearance? Is it in our status? Is it in some perfect makeup of particular relationships? Is it grades? Is it athletic performance? Is it our rightness? There's so many things that we can find our identity in. And we feel good about ourselves because of these things. We start to compile them. We start to organize them. We start to to codify them. And the very best thing that God can do for me and God can do for you is to let all of that stuff unravel because eventually (laughs) it all unravels. Eventually there'll be a crisis. There'll be a collapse. There'll be circumstances that make us question all of it. We'll realize these things don't ever really make meaning. We'll grow tired of just trying to be distracted. We'll discover there's emptiness in these things. And and when we we reach that point, we actually have to face who we are. That's what happens to Saul in the darkness. He's been confronted. And now he's having to take an inventory of his understanding of God and his understanding of his own life. Who am I in light of this? I I appreciate this quote from John Bunyan because um, it is not popular to say this kind of thing today. We live in a my way, the right way. Like, that's the kind of culture we live in. We want it right now. Um, but this speaks to the truth. Bunyan says this. He says, conversion is not the smooth, easygoing process some seem to think. It is a wounding work, this breaking of the heart. But without wounding, there's no saving. Where there is grafting, there will always be a cutting. The graft must be let in. And this, I say, must be done by a wound, by a cut. There's a confrontation, and then there's consideration. And our response to all of these makes all the difference in the world. <laughs> and I'm not using that as a metaphor. That's not hyperbole. It's the truth. Conversion that comes through the fire of confrontation, conversion that comes through the season of darkness and con- consideration, it produces a faith that literally flips the world upside down. That's what we're seeing here. That's what's, what we're understanding And and let me just say this, this is not something that's one and done. So for those of you that say, no, I had that experience and it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago, let me just tell you, it is not just a one-time experience. We are too broken as human beings. We have too much capacity to build idols in our own hearts to allow this to be one time and we're all good. If we open our lives to a God who is bigger than our heart's imagination, then we will experience a thousand little conversions throughout our lives. Times when he shows us us that he's bigger and different, and he challenges us about where we find meaning and purpose and what really matters. Which ultimately, that leads to my closing challenge today. Uh, in just a moment, uh, the band's going to close us in some worship and let us reflect on this. But as they as they get ready, uh, I just I want to challenge you with this. I think we put a lot of emphasis on being faithful. Faithful is a good Christian word. And and, and that's a big part of being a part of the faith is being faithful. And, And part of that is very beautiful and very wonderful. But let me just tell you that oftentimes being faithful is attached to things in our past. And what's ironic about Paul is that it was his zeal. It was his faithfulness to the past and what he understood that caused him to miss Jesus when Jesus was right in front of him. Let me just tell you this, that God wants us to be faithful. I'm not questioning that, but God also wants us to be faith-filled. And the difference is in the destination. Being faithful is much about what we've known and being consistent and stable, but being faith-filled is about us looking to the future and saying, God, what are you doing in the days ahead? What are you doing in the moments ahead? What are you going to do in me? What are you going to do through me? What are you going to do through us as a church? That's what it means to be faith-filled And I believe everything that we're seeing in this conversion story is a call for us to move towards a God who is larger than our imagination and be filled with faith about the future that he has for us. So that's the question for you today. How is God confronting you? What is God calling you to reconsider? And where are you? Where are we going from here? For some of you, this is a good reminder. For some of you, this is a challenge. And for some of you, Um, You're realizing you're right in the middle of this. And let me just say, no matter where you are on the faith spectrum, the best thing that all of us can do right now is say yes to Jesus and what he wants to do and be reminded that we chose to follow him. The truth is he's meeting us. Just like Saul, he's calling our name and he's saying, "I, I want your attention because I've got some things to show you about who I am. So let's take a moment now. We're going to worship and reflect. And I just encourage you to allow these truths to sink in. And then in just a moment, I'll be back and I'll offer the benediction. Let's
1: sing this together. Sing, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails.
0: As we close today, I want to mention a couple of things. Um, First of all, I I was talking to somebody this week and I just mentioned to them that on my desk right now, there's a stack of letters um, that have been written by you, uh, handwritten notes that many of you have written to say thank you to us during this season. And I just want to say thank you to you for being with us, for being faithful for being faith-filled about the days ahead. I'm so grateful for you. And if you've been writing letters, I want you to know that every time I get one, I pray for you and I thank God for you. The other thing I wanna mention is this, is we have a a sort of new tradition here at B4 that's tied to a very ancient tradition. And that's that we close our services with a benediction. In just a moment, I'm gonna offer some words to you. And uh, I just encourage you right now to extend your hands wherever you are. I know it might be kind of awkward, but wherever you are, just extend your hands out as I offer this benediction over you right now. May you discover the God who is larger than what your heart could ever imagine. May you embrace and welcome a confrontation from that God. May you sit in a moment of contemplation and consideration and may your heart and may your life and may your ways and all of your thinking be converted by a God who loves you dearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys so much. Thanks so much for taking time with us today. Have an amazing week. I look forward to checking in with you midweek this week. We'll see you guys later.